Yo, when you said critical thought, Critical thought, critical mind Think to yourself in critical times M5M trying to wash your mind And you know they lying Critical thought, critical mind Think to yourself in critical times M5M trying to wash your mind And you know they lying Greetings and welcome to the Critical Thought Podcast Where I give you my unsolicited narrative on the mainstream media And try to read between the lines Warning if you have an enlarged amygdala, proceed with caution. The zombie drug xylazine, also known as Trank. Consumers who use the drug either knowingly or unknowingly often fall into an hours-long stupor. Greetings, and welcome to episode 4 of the Critical Thought Podcast. This week we're going to kick it off with a little bit of Russia-Ukraine news. Saudi Arabia hosts a conference this weekend to talk about peace in Ukraine, but Russia won't be there. The country wasn't even invited. Instead, this is a chance for Ukraine to garner more international support for its ideas on how the war should end. NPR diplomatic correspondent Michelle Kellerman joins us. Michelle, thanks for being with us. Nice to be here, Scott. Uh, h- how do you have a peace conference without the country that's waging the war? Yeah, I mean, you can't quite call this a peace conference. The two sides are really... I remember a few months ago it was China that was calling for peace between the Ukraine and Russia and I guess that didn't get any traction so now Saudi Arabia is calling for peace between Ukraine and Russia and how you have a peace conference or a peace summit between the Ukraine and Russia and Russia isn't invited to the summit far apart from any talks, but what the Ukrainians want is more support from countries that have been on the fence up to now. They have this um, 10-point peace plan that would ensure that Russian forces get out of their country. It calls for the restoration of Ukraine's territorial integrity, and it calls for accountability for Russia's aggression. And a former U.S. ambassador, William Taylor, puts it this way. So the Ukrainians want to make the case that they are in the right they're on the right side of the principles, the international principles, the moral principles, and that they, the Ukrainians deserve the support of the Indians and the Brazils and the South Africans. And yeah. How are they going to ask for the support of the Indians and the Brazils and the South Africans when those are the countries that make up the BRICS nations of which Russia is a part? They're not going to get that support. So if that is one of the contingencies that they're using in this peace summit that they want Russia to acknowledge their wrongdoings and they want support from Russia's allies, that's not going to happen. And the Chinese, by the way, China announced that its special representative on Eurasian affairs is going to attend this uh, meeting in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. And Taylor says that's really a big deal because China is an ally of the Russians and this meeting is about Ukraine's proposals for peace and not Russia's perspective. Ukraine has been talking about this idea since last year. Is there any sign that any of the nations you mentioned are any closer to signing on to it? It's uh, hard to know, but Taylor thinks there are a couple of factors that are kind of new here and might make other countries... None of those countries are going to sign on. Those are BRICS countries. You know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. None of those. You can't ask those countries to sign some kind of agreement in favor of the Ukraine. Rethink their approach. Um, Russia recently pulled out of that grain deal that allowed Ukraine to ship its food through the Black Sea, and that's... um, having ripple effects around the world. 
And then there was this attempt no, at mutiny in Russia, you know, that short-lived uprising by Yevgeny Prigozhin and his Wagner mercenaries. Taylor thinks that kind of damaged the image of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Take a listen. He's not the big, strong, unimpeachable... All right, so the, my my view on the whole Wagner group is that these guys aren't even... It's a part of the show. It's just a part of the theater. Zelensky was a comedian turned president. You know what I mean? There isn't even really a war legally between these two countries, as we found out a couple of episodes ago. And the whole Wagner group, these guys are just the front, the front-facing people. Like I don't even know if they're they're really doing anything at all. And so there is scope for nations as they evaluate where they come down on the Russia invasion against Ukraine too to think about this in a new way. Taylor was actually in uh, Ukraine last week, and that's kind of what he was hearing. So that's the hope of the Ukrainians. He was um, also saying that the mood was pretty grim on the military side because the counteroffensive has really bogged down. But they're more hopeful on the diplomatic side. What do U.S. officials tell you about this meeting? Well, they're sending National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, and he's going to be joined by Victoria Newland, who's now the acting Deputy Secretary of State. So it's a high-level U.S. delegation, but they're not really raising any big expectations of a breakthrough here. They're just hoping that countries will kind of inch closer to Ukraine's perspective on the war. And by the way, that includes Saudi Arabia, which is hosting the meeting. And, and why? Well, you know, the Saudis have maintained ties with Russia throughout the war, and they seem to be kind of positioning themselves to play a larger diplomatic role. They're also kind of trying to show the U.S. that they can be responsible players on the world stage. Um, relations are just kind of slowly emerging from a pretty rough patch between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. The irony behind all of this is that countries like Saudi Arabia and a few months ago China they're now making the moves that once upon a time America would have been making, right? Back in the day, it would have been America coming to mediate and be like, oh, we need to talk peace, and if there is going to be war, we're going to spearhead the front, right? But now it's countries like Saudi Arabia, which have had horrible human rights type um, issues, and then <laughs> communist China, and these are the countries that are coming to the forefront to be like, yo, we need some peace between Russia and Ukraine. I don't know if there's irony there. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but there's a something to that whole narrative that I don't know. It smell fishy. Let's talk about uh, Africa and Russia and the alliance that is forming between these two nations. Now, the continent of Africa, we all know it's a continent rich in natural resources. Absolutely rich in natural resources. We also know that it has been a continent that has been taken advantage of by Europeans for the most part. And we also know that there's been a lot of um, rebellion, a lot of revolt, and a lot of pushback from African countries against these European colonizers in them in recent years and more so in 2023 there's things going on all over the place in Nigeria and all these places right so I find it a very interesting scenario when a country or rather 
countries on the continent of Africa are reaching out specifically to Russia to form alliances. So after Russia pulled out of that grain deal, Ukraine was unable to supply some of these African countries with grain. They had previously been able to do so. In steps Russia to be the quote-unquote savior of these countries and supply them with grain now. Now I only hope that these countries that are getting into these affairs with Russia know exactly what they're doing and if Russia is going to claim to help them to liberate their natural resources and be able to utilize them then that's a that's a, a, a promise you take with a grain of salt the Chinese were in in Africa most recently and they definitely were just like the European colonizers they were just raping and pillaging the continent so it's left to see what the Russians will do. And that's a long spiel and build up to get into this story where there is a Africa-Russia summit taking place. And um, this is the president of Eritrea and he's speaking to the alliance that needs to be formed against the Western countries and in particular NATO and some other European countries. When people talk about Russia Ukraine, I say there is no Russia Ukraine war at all. There is no Russia Ukraine conflict. This is war declared by NATO on Russia. The war declared by NATO on It's interesting that he would say that because in last week's I believe it was last week's episode, we had some political scientists or somebody in that realm of thought that was on a particular show stating that legally Russia and Ukraine are not at war. So you know to hear this echoed from another perspective that there really is no war between Russia and Ukraine. This is more of a, a NATO war against Russia and Ukraine is the proxy, you know? Uh, it's just another another perspective of this whole there is really no war between Ukraine and Russia storyline. Russia is not only for Russia, it's for dominating the whole world, it's for hegemony. This is an agenda developed after the end of the Cold War. They came up with this fantasy about containing, containing Russia, containing Russia. It's a defunct ideology. It was defunct. NATO does not exist. NATO is under intensive care. EU does not exist. EU is under intensive care. No. So basically this guy is saying that the EU and NATO are failing systems and it's only a matter of time before they become defunct and they're in the last gasps and they're fighting and clawing to hold on to some semblance of power. This is his theory. I don't know if it's so or not, but it's a theory worth investigating in my opinion. And we need to put this straight on the record. NATO will not get out of intensive care. EU will not get out of intensive care. And we need uh, uh, a new financial architecture globally. Not controlled by Euro, not controlled by, by, by the dollar, not controlled by, by other currencies. To me, A this currency. Of the, 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 the attempt to contain so he's making reference to the BRICS currency, you know, some kind of other currency that they're not 
trading in euros or dollars and brazil russia india china and south africa were the original members of the BRICS, and i think saudi arabia and some other countries have since kind of like leaned towards joining these these group of nations and a lot of african countries seem to be leaning into that idea as well and it might not be such a bad idea because um then they can control the money in which they trade or the currency in which they trade it's going to be a basket of currencies backed by um precious metals gold and so forth so i mean it might not be a bad idea i just get kind of weary anytime it come to like a centralized currency because if it's centralized it's not going to be any different from the fiat money that we're currently using but i digress back to this clip so in this next part of the clip um the president speaks directly to the fact that african countries and russia need to strategize they need to come up with a plan but he also makes it very clear that russia needs to be spearheading the strategy i think we need to strategize and i say russia will have to leave this strategy russia will have to design a plan on facing this declared war not only on russia but it's a global war everybody should come and join russia on this strategy the sooner the better, the easier way we can control this hegemonistic uh, strategy and frustrate that strategy, we give peace. Development will come. Nobody's going to bother us. Nobody's going to, 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 to bully everybody. Sanctions. You see, when you push, all right, so this was bound to happen, you know. You have a country like Russia that as soon as NATO infringe upon this territory, then there's this quote-unquote war right between russia and the ukraine the first thing they did when this war kicked off was they cut russia off of the swift banking system now if you do that you're gonna leave russia very few options they're gonna have to find allies to trade with and some of these allies became china and some of the other countries within the BRICS nation and now they're making more allies and then there's these african countries that feel hard-pressed by the european colonizers that were on the continent and still on the continent raping the continent so now they are reaching out and it becomes an enemy of my enemy is my friend type of deal and if you listen to the way the eritrean president is speaking is he's bordering on a radical speech without really pushing the limits and stepping over the line we need a strategy an alternative strategy for this hegemonistic uh, declaration of war and every event every event bilateral multilateral will have to adopt this strategy and that's why i said uh, during my intervention russia should design a strategy it's not because russia will have to do everything what i find intriguing is the fact that in this whole thing he hasn't mentioned china and china has to play a role in all of this you know what i mean because again the enemy of my enemy is my friend at some point in time it's gonna be china russia and africa that are coming together to to do something whether it be military wise or just from a point of commerce and trade but it's gonna be those three nations right because they're 
the one thing Russia and China already have in common, or two things they have in common, is one, they share a border. It just makes sense for them to be allies. Secondly, they're both embedded in Africa. So Africa gets drawn into this somehow, even if they didn't want, even if the continent didn't want to be a part of this, by the very nature of what's going on and the political alliances and the trade alliances that have been taking place, they're involved. So it makes sense that he would say, oh, you know, Russia needs to lead the, the, the charge and Russia needs to lead the strategy and they will give assistance. I, f I find it curious that he hasn't mentioned China in terms of playing a role in this whole thing. So here's the other side of the story now. We know that the US does not have a very strong foothold on the continent of Africa. But that doesn't mean that they're not going to try to increase their presence. And the timing couldn't be more pertinent because we just heard that there are African countries that are in talks with the Russian Federation to strengthen ties and strategize a plan. And this is what the US is doing on their side of the fence to try and get a stronger foothold in Africa. The US Secretary of State Antony Blinken told young leaders from Africa Wednesday that collaboration as equal partners is necessary to meet today's challenges of food security, preventing conflict, and combating climate change. Some of the brightest young Africans. That idea is really at the heart of our approach towards Sub-Saharan Africa. The approach is focused on what we can do with Africa, not for Africa. It reflects the incredible diversity and influence of the continent. It also recognizes the important role that young Africans especially have in shaping our planet for the generations to come. We're committed to working with young African leaders like you today and for years to come so that together we have an opportunity to build a world that's a little bit more stable, a little bit more resilient, a little bit more prosperous for all. Yeah, so that is the sentiment from the U.S. Press Secretary, Anthony Lincoln. So, um, a little bit too little too late. I don't know. I don't think the U.S. has much of a chance of getting any kind of foothold in Africa, especially since the one of the very few that they have, they're currently losing as far as the, the coup in Niger is concerned. The senior State Department official tells us the U.S. does not believe Prigozhin is behind the coup in Niger, where today the president was seen publicly for the first time since being ousted. Our Courtney Cuby is the only U.S.-based journalist inside Niger. Tonight, the first glimpse of Niger's democratically elected president, Mohamed Bazoum. Not seen since last week after a coup. Bazoum smiling, meeting with the leader of Chad, who's now trying to mediate in Niger after several West African countries called on the coup leaders to give up power, warning them to release President Bazoum in the next week or face possible military action. Such measures may include the use of force. Over the weekend, thousands took to the streets of the capital here, mostly peaceful, supporting the coup. Some waving Russian flags chanting, Long live Russia. So you see what I mean with, with Russia been getting a stronger foothold in Africa. There's a coup going on in Niger, or Niger, however you want to pronounce it. And they have people in the streets waving Russian flags and chanting, long live Russia. Now, is this coup, has this coup been incited by 
Russian intelligence on the continent or within the country of Niger. I don't know. That's speculation on my part, but that's what the U.S. is really good at doing. That's what they're well known for. They're known for putting their operatives on the ground and um, initiating the overthrow of governments in countries that they want to put a puppet government in. I don't know if it's irony or if it's coincidence. I don't know what you want to call it that America is losing their foothold and Russia is gaining a foothold and there's a coup going on and these guys are in the street waving Russian flags. Violence erupted outside the French embassy. Crowds burning a door and throwing rocks at windows chased off by tear gas before they could breach the outer walls. Tonight, the coup leaders have not responded to the ultimatum, vowing to defend Niger from aggression, accusing France of planning a military intervention. Both France and the U.S. have military bases here in Niger. Adding to the tensions, should the U.S. designate this as a coup, more than $400 million in U.S. aid and military training would immediately be at risk. Any questions? Mm, the training would have to stop, and the money, the inflow of the money would have to stop as well. That can't happen. Let's switch gears and jump into some Big Pharma news. Let's see how Big Pharma is convincing us this week in the news cycle that we're not getting enough vaccines, we're not taking enough pills, and we need to get more medicated. They've been game changers in the world of weight loss. The drugs Ozempic and Mountjaro delivering big results, generally without dangerous side effects. Generally without dangerous side effects these drugs have just recently been released on the market in heavy rotation and as far as ozempic being used as a weight loss drug that's off label that's not even what it was really intended for it's supposed to be used for diabetes and one of the side effects is that you lose some weight maybe you should just watch what you're putting in your mouth and have a little bit more control and not take this stuff because the pharmaceutical industry is never really looking out for your best interests. Listen. Saying the drugs can cause stomach paralysis, something they claim happened to their client, a 44-year-old Louisiana woman who took the drugs for type 2 diabetes and weight loss. Her problems have been so severe that she's been to the emergency room multiple times, including last weekend. She's actually even uh, thrown up so violently that she's lost teeth. <laughs> Stomach paralysis can be a side effect of diabetes, which the drugs are commonly prescribed for. Rhea Hand, who is not involved in the lawsuit, has had similar issues with Ozempic. The stomach pain was just unbearable and I just couldn't keep anything down. I would have, I would drink something and within minutes, like five, ten minutes later, I would be throwing it right up. More than 40% of Americans are obese and demand for the medications has soared. They aren't cheap. A one-month supply can cost more than $1,300. But now the University of Texas system says it will end insurance coverage for the FDA-approved weight loss drugs Wagovi and Sexenda in September. Other employers are increasing the copay amount. Some consider the moves a setback, as obesity has only recently been treated as a disease by many health plans. In you know, they said insurance company is going to stop providing coverage for it, but some employers are improving or increasing their co-pay amount. Now, I wonder if 
any of these pharmaceutical companies are funding this influx of cash that these companies are then transferring to increasing the copay amount for these drugs that the insurance companies don't seem to want to cover anymore. The drugs are labeled with side effects. Most commonly, that's nausea, constipation, and stomach pain. CBS News did reach out to the drug companies, Eli Lilly telling us that patient safety is a top priority. Novo Nordovitis saying that its drugs are safe, that it constantly monitors them, and that it was unaware of the suit. <laughs> Bullshit. They were unaware of the suit. Your company is being sued, and you didn't know that it was taking place. And of course your drugs are safe. Which pharmaceutical company is going to tell you that this shit's going to kill you? So Big Pharma have some more vaccines that they need to offload. I mean, it must be the case because they're still beating the COVID horse. I thought we were done with COVID like months ago now. And in the process of beating the COVID horse to death, they're also going to try to scare parents. They're going to try to scare mothers into giving... Their infants, this RSV shot, I think we covered this on episode 2 of the podcast. But they haven't sold enough vaccines or they're probably not on track for the sales that they expected. So here's the marketing push. The CDC is now recommending a new shot that stops a virus that can be deadly for children. The agency says babies under 8 months old should be vaccinated against RSV, a respiratory illness that is the leading cause of infant... And by the way, RSV has been around forever, you know, like forever and ever, amen. And it hasn't really been a thing that has been like out of control. They said 300 children die from, from RSV every year. 300 deaths and you want to give kids vaccines for that and that story just lead into this story where they're trying to tell us that covid is on the uptick but in the same breath they tell us that the hospital hospitalizations are at a record low so which one is it is covid threatening to kill everybody again are they even still testing for covid i thought they stopped testing for covid a long time ago how are they getting these numbers now to new COVID concern this morning. Now, the number of people testing positive in hospitals appears to be ticking up. Stephanie Ramos is here now with a reality check on what those numbers mean. Good morning, a Stephanie. reality check. Hey, Michael, good morning. These days, it's almost impossible to tell how many COVID cases there really are. The CDC because has stopped keeping track, and most people don't report their cases anymore. So the best way Hold to track on. the virus is counting. I was just joking when I said that, but she really just said that the CDC is no longer keeping track. So how are they really getting these numbers? The CDC has stopped keeping track and most people don't report their cases anymore. So the best way to track the virus is counting people who test positive during hospital admissions. And that number, while pretty small, is on the rise. According to new numbers from the CDC overnight, COVID hospitalizations have increased 12% in the week ending July 22nd compared to the prior week. But to put that into perspective, hospitalizations still remain at record lows. There were a little more than 8,000 weekly so hospitalizations. why is this even a story? Just peak Omicron was more than 150,000. Deaths have not increased, but there could be reporting delays. The federal government is now setting its sights on treating long COVID with we'll new studies and first. a new office to lead the response for people still suffering from the virus. But we have one more report because they're not going to let this COVID thing go so easily. Let's turn to a big uh, medical headline. 
headline uh, this afternoon. Yes. The Biden administration announced the launching of a new government office to focus on long COVID research and to help those people who've had long COVID break this down for us. I needed answers to these questions that patients so often ask. I'm not sure if you know, but one in 13 adults are currently suffering from long COVID. That equates to more than 15 million Americans in this country. Mm. So I just wanted to discuss what we need to know about it, specifically the symptoms. They can last weeks to months to years. They more often happen in those... Pause before I get into the symptoms. How much are you willing to bet that these symptoms are symptoms of the common flu and or cold? who have severe COVID illnesses, especially those who have required hospitalization. Uh, people who are not vaccinated tend to be higher risk with symptoms and, uh, and presentation of long COVID. And overall, the common symptoms include fatigue, that brain fog that we discussed, GI issues. But I think the most common symptom that I see in the ER are young people with palpitations. It's one of the most common symptoms that I see, especially when someone has had a recent case of COVID-19. A recent case of the vaccine. Um, so hopefully this new department under the uh, human and health services within the uh, NIH and coordinated through that will help to define answers so that maybe we can get a test one day and then also hopefully interventions <laughs> and treatment. So on the topic of climate change, you remember last week's story about people in, I believe it was Phoenix, that were having, there was a rise in contact burns. And I was wondering like if people were laying on the streets. I think it was, hold on, let me pull it back. I think it was this story from last week. This morning, the record-smashing heat wave is expanding. Triple-digit temperatures are possible in the plains and Midwest in the coming days, from Wichita to Minneapolis. And by week's end, temperatures near 100 for Chicago. We got smoke, we got heat, then we got storms in the forecast, all for the week ahead. Doctors warn this heat can take a toll on your heart. A new study finds the soaring temperatures combined with poor air quality can double your risk of suffering a deadly heart attack. In Arizona, it's the pavement causing a surge in patients at the Phoenix... Right, that one, that, that story. So they were trying to say, like, this whole heat thing was causing a rise in heart attacks. Now, they get hot every year. It's not any hotter this year than it was last year. So maybe those heart attacks have something to do with the vaccine, which they just don't want to seem to link any of these heart issues to, even though there's tons of people, healthy people, athletes, that run for a living, you know what I mean? Exercise for a living, play sports for a living. And all of a sudden, these people are keeling over with heart issues. But that's not even the issue I really wanted to get to. I digress. I was saying last week, how are these people just falling down and, and getting contact burns? And I was saying, you know, if these people are literally laying in the street, then it's a, it's a mental retardation issue, not a mental gymnastic issue. But here's the follow-up to that story, and we'll see why people are actually laying in the streets and getting contact burns. The big story in Phoenix right now is that we had like over 200 people uh, die because of uh, 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 the heat. That's what we're being told. Heat deaths, heat-related deaths. And so we had a big summit with uh, President Biden and with uh, Mayor Kay Gallego, and they were talking about all the things they can do, you know, to, to, to curb the climate crisis that we have. They're talking about planting a billion trees yeah. in the desert. Also, they're going to have mobile cooling stations and set cooling stations and a home heating office. And they're going to go around and they're going to make sure that the workers have mandated water breaks. All of this because it's hot in the in desert, the desert in July. 
Well, I have a better idea. Tell them. Why don't we tell the truth about the people who are dying in the streets here? They're the homeless. And why are they dying? Because they are on fentanyl. And when they get all drugged out, they lay on the hot asphalt. And if you lay on asphalt when it's 114 degrees and you don't get up, you're going to die. All right. That has been the bulk of the heating deaths in Tucson. And they're using those people to push their global climate warming, climate change agenda. It's despicable, but that's what... This is what I've been saying for a while, you know, that they are going to use global warming to our climate change to initiate some kind of future lockdown. You know what I mean? Like people are dropping down and having heat related deaths and they're not telling you exactly what these deaths are related to, but they're going to blame it on climate change nonetheless. And see, this dude is telling you that it's because these people are, are strung out on fentanyl and that's why they're laying down on hot asphalt and succumbing to contact burns and, and, and heat exhaustion. And that story kind of tie into this story here, which is more of a, is a deeper look into what's really going on with this zombie drug called Trank that's been ravaging parts of Philadelphia for the last... Well, I don't know how long it's been going on. I first saw videos of this on TikTok in February of this year. So, February, March. So, who knows how long it's been going on. But this drug has literally been turning people into zombies. You see people bent over, hands touching the floor, like just folded over. Literally standing and sleeping. You know what I mean? So, it's, it's a, sad, a sad state and it's, it's not really an easy thing to watch. But... This story will dive into that in a little bit more detail and give us some insight. Half-conscious addicts with deep sores and bent backs are becoming a more frequent sight in several countries, especially in the U.S. where the zombie drug has recently gained traction. The zombie drug xylazine, also known as Trank, is originally an animal tranquilizer that is both cheap and easy to access. As a result, it has made inroads in illicit drug markets. The use of xylazine was first reported in Puerto Rico and Philadelphia in the mid-2000s, but experts say that it was in 2020 during the COVID-19 pandemic that its consumption increased exponentially in Philadelphia and in other states. And now, in 2023, it is present in most U.S. states. When consumed, it is known to cause necrosis in humans because it reduces blood pressure. So this thing is really the, the zombie drug, like it caused necrosis. You see your flesh start to rot. I don't think that's a coincidence. It, it does seem like a sick kind of joke, but most of these things are cooked up in a lab somewhere and it just, it seems more intentional than anything else. You know, it's like, it's like life imitating art. Heart rate and respiration, necrosis, the rotting of human tissue can ultimately cause victims to require amputation. And that's where the drug gets its nickname, zombie drug. While Trink is not an opioid that is used by itself, drug dealers often combine it with depressants or stimulants like heroin, cocaine, and fentanyl to prolong or enhance their effects or to increase their weight. Which which drug dealers are doing this? This girl don't I don't think she really understand the the game because if you're killing your clients, you're not gonna have very many clients to come. You're not gonna have any repeat customers, right? And that's the name of the game is to get them coming back, not to kill them. So I don't really see any real drug dealers putting the shit in their stuff, knowing that this is what it's doing. As a matter of fact, that's why the Mexican cartels stop using 
the stuff from China because it was killing people and they started to produce their own fentanyl, right? So this is not coming from the cartels. This is not coming from Mexico. It's probably coming straight from China. And then the question is, do the alphabet boys know that this is coming into the country? Are they allowing it to come into the country? And if so, why would they allow it to come into the country? Because this is China, in my opinion, this is China tearing down the social fabric of America with this um with this drug. And in turn, raise their street value. These combinations can be lethal, especially when fentanyl is involved, as fentanyl is said to be 50 times stronger than heroin and is often itself used to adulterate other drugs like heroin and cocaine. Consumers who use the drug either knowingly or unknowingly often fall into an hours-long stupor and once they huh. wake up, oh, long stupor. it requires that the effect... Yo, life has got to be like really hard for you to want to be out of it for an hour to put yourself into an hour-long stupor in the middle of the day, in the middle of the street. I mean, it really just, it kind of sad. Consumers who use the drug either knowingly or unknowingly often fall into an hours-long stupor, and once they wake up, they are already in need of another high. Treating xylazine patients is difficult, as it requires that the effects of multiple addictions be mediated, and at times that body parts with infected skin ulcers be amputated, as some grow so deep they can infect tendons and bones. Overdose reversal drugs that are often used for opioid addicts are not very effective on xylazine, making treat... Let me forgive them people that have access to Iboga. You see, and that's the thing, you know, them have these alternate um, treatments for people that are addicted to stuff and people that have resistant um, or treatment re resistant depression and all these things. And they make all of this shit illegal so that people don't have access to these things and then they hook them on these drugs. I mean, that's a topic for another day still. Alright, so let's jump into the mental gymnastics portion of the podcast. This is usually how we close the podcast out, so I think we'll do the same and stick to the trend. Governor Pritzker recently signed more than 130 bills, and among the new laws, one allowing non-citizens to become police officers in Illinois. Well, that's a good idea. Schneider are live in studio with details on this. Scott. Anthony Nelly, this law requires that immigrants be legally authorized to work under federal law. The bill's sponsor called it a natural progression now that some undocumented immigrants can become healthcare workers and military members. Oh, it's However, a natural progression. Right. By Republicans and the Illinois Fraternal Order of Police. The FOP issued a statement earlier this month ahead of Friday's bill signing. It reads in part... It just sound like a dumb fucking idea to me. Send when it allows people who undocumented immigrants. To become the officers of our laws. This is a potential crisis of confidence in law enforcement. Like it just don't make any sense. Literally, people who don't have legal status are going to be put in a position to uphold the law. It reads in part, what message does this legislation send when it allows people who do not have legal status to become the officers of our laws this is a potential crisis of confidence in law enforcement at a time when our officers need all the public confidence they can get now i remember maybe three or some months ago new york state was asking was begging for migrants to be sent to New York because they were the quote-unquote sanctuary state, right? And then they had the solution to the problem. 
open the borders and let these people come in because we need more migrants we need as many migrants as we can get here's an update on how that's going here in new york hundreds of migrants have been forced to sleep on the streets as mayor eric adams declared there's no more room he called out the biden administration for failing help as over ninety thousand people arrived in new york city over the past year and a half in july the mayor said new york city would distribute flyers at the u.s mexico border telling asylum seekers to consider another city <laughs> housing and rights advocates have blasted the adams administration yo go somewhere else we can't take no more people in new york we are the sanctuary state. That's what they were saying six months ago. And I don't even think it's a year ago they were saying that they are the sanctuary state. And now, them a ball too many migrants in Manhattan. What are they going to do? What are the plans for these people? Administration for its handling of the situation. This is Murad Awada of the New York Immigration Coalition. Another slap in the face to our, you know, neat, historical New Yorkers who've been here and our most recent arrivals who are just seeking a little bit of help in this moment. We need to actually stop doubling and tripling down on broken systems like our emergency shelter system and actually invest in getting people out of emergency shelter and into permanent housing. New York officials are calling on the federal government to allow for expedited work permits for asylum seekers. Yo, they're actually, I think they're considering like opening a tent city in parts of the park, you know. At the risk of sounding like some kind of conspiracy theorist, if I were going to try to destabilize a major city to maybe have to implement some kind of um, emergency state or state of emergency, this is how I would do it. I would flood that city with a bunch of immigrants, defund the police, have crime and everything else get so out of hand that the only choice would be to bring in the military and have a state of emergency. So as we dive further into the mental gymnastics segment of the show, I want to touch on the fact that there is a correlation that is not often made, even though there is apparently some science to, to back this correlation up. And the correlation is this. Most of the young people that are being swept up in this trans movement, they're on the spectrum. They're on the spectrum for autism. Now, just regular autistic people already feel like they don't belong in society. They feel like they don't have a place. So I think it would be as sick as this sound and as sad as this is, or I think it would be a lot easier to target these people on the spectrum with the propaganda of if you feel out of place, maybe it's because you're in the wrong body and you should consider being a boy or a girl or a they or a them. All of this gender dysphoria and autism have a very significant correlation. Pride flag, this colorful pride, well, pride flag, it's on my, uh, my Substack and on my Twitter feed, was recently updated to overlay the autism infinity symbol that was the this, this, this symbol of the Autism Society since 1999. And in so why, why, why would the pride flag now include the Autism Infinity symbol? In, in the upgrade, it said this is to include, include neurodiversity. Neurodiversity. So why, why autism? Why not stroke or multiple sclerosis or some other condition? Right. Well, this is what we've learned. Uh, a, a 
paper by Vandermeesen from the Netherlands now, uh, nearly 15 years ago, pointed out that young people going for gender change were autistic. And again, he pointed out that this is the Netherlands and this paper came out 15 years ago. And I think this is important because I harp on this week in and week out that there isn't really enough evidence in the States. There's not enough research around this whole topic for them to have any any evidence that would be concrete. But in other places like the Netherlands, they were ahead of the curve on this um, whole trans and gender dysmorphia business. So they have 15 years plus of research, 20 years plus in some cases of significant research and they are actually able to see the destructive forces and outcomes of some of these type of um, surgeries, especially when they're administered to children. So some other well, this is what we've learned. Uh, a paper by Vandermeesen from the Netherlands now, uh, nearly 15 years ago, pointed out that young people going for gender change were autistic. At least 20% had the clinical diagnosis of autism. And now more recently, a big survey, 600,000 people, LGBT survey, surveyed using standard psychometric instruments. And guess what? LGBT, particularly the T, is off the Richter scale for autism and autism spectrum disorder. So essentially the sickos that are pushing this type of movement, this whole transgender thing and and body mutilation rather of these kids, these sickos are targeting autistic children. They're targeting a group of people that already feel ostracized and out of place. Tell me since when summer camps became a uh, a place where you push sexual agendas lbgtq plus i whatever don't have any place in summer camps in my opinion but apparently the folks in new york don't think that way the same folks that want to bring in all the immigrants and now they can't house them so just remember that these are the same people we're dealing with here the same rationale that was applied to that thought process is being applied here for many kids camp helps add some sparkle to their summers they're a little chunkier at new country pride camp that sparkle is a lot more literal the 14th street y and new country that sparkle is a lot more literal pride camp now, in its third year, the program is specifically aimed at serving LGBTQ plus kids and children of people in those communities. These pride campers from across the New York City area have come for a taste of typical summer fun. Everybody here is part of the LGBTQ community, so you have a lot of people that are just like you. From my experience, when a bunch of people in the same community gather together it's so much easier to talk to them and make friends camp staples like swimming these children have been indoctrinated crafts but the campers also get some more pride-centric activities all with a focus on inclusivity and self-expression i did a lot you see how the man put the emphasis on inclusivity so that's what you know that's why i said these esg and these dei initiatives and all of this shit don't buy into it because these things are all wrapped up in one big ball and once you bite that that bait they have your hook line and sinker once you start supporting one of these things you automatically you're in support of 
all of the rubbish that they tie into it, you know what I mean? It's the same way they try to hitch the transgender movement to the the civil rights movement, you know what I mean? They try to tie all these things together. Um, I'm a battle-worn zombified vampire. And LGBTQ plus counselors are also on hand. They help show the kids the joy and connection of being in the queer community. I have these trans kids coming to me and saying, are kids going to use my pronouns in middle school? And it's tough to see them recognize that school is not going to be the same as private. This is so sad. The trans kids should not be a thing. That shouldn't even be a thing. These children who haven't even hit puberty yet and you're, you're transitioning them into being something that... It's, it not, it's not right, yo. I can't. If this camp existed when I was younger, I would be a very different person. I think my internalized homophobia would be much less. One of the realities still today about being an LGBTQ plus kid is a sense of isolation. When kids are here at Pride Camp, they are accepted and they are part of the group. And the hope is they'll be able to take that sense of belonging outside of these campgrounds. They're telling you the type of children that they want to come to their camps or the type of children rather that are present in these camps. And the underlying thread is this type of child that feels unwanted, unnoticed, does not feel accepted. And this kind of ties back to what we were listening to earlier where they were saying like children with autism are the ones that usually kind of tend to fall into this bracket. And instead of getting to the core of the matter, they're just gonna they're just gonna take advantage of these autistic children and put them into gay camps and tell them that this is your way to being accepted you don't feel accepted in the outside world come to a gay camp and we'll accept you you're doing something good for humanity you're standing up to these adults that don't understand you we're giving you a place to belong this is this is maoism this is the same agenda that the maoists were using back in the day and that's where we'll wrap episode number four of the Critical Thought Podcast. I hope you found it insightful. I hope you found it informative. Join me next week for episode number five. Yo, when you said critical thought, what did you really mean? Critical thought, critical mind. Think to yourself in critical times. M5M trying to watch your mind. And you know they line. Critical thought, critical mind. Think to yourself in critical times. M5M trying to watch your mind. And you know they